Father in heaven, we've just sung of your extraordinary grace and your love for us, your provision, your providing what we need in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you're a God who provides what we need day by day as well, week by week. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning as we open your word up together. Might you soften our hearts. Might you speak to us. Speak into the different contexts of our lives, the different situations that we're going through, the anxieties and the joys. Might your living and active words do a work in us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've mentioned before um, here the word affluenza. Um, affluenza is, is still a word in the papers and the news, and if anything, maybe it's getting w- worse in our Western culture. Um, it was first thought to have been used as a word in 1954, but then popularised 2007 by a book by a British psychologist named Oliver James. Um, And his big idea is that we in our Western society, our Western culture, are infected with this proverbial affluenza virus. It's a combination of um, affluence and influenza put together. Um, And the symptoms of this um, proverbial virus, how do you know if you've been infected? Well, it's not through achy limbs and a runny nose. But according to Oliver, it's through a spiralling rate of mental illness that we see all around us, and in us even. A mental illness that springs essentially from materialism, or as he puts it, the affluenza virus. We're a people, he he says, who place a high value on money, possessions, appearance, social or physical, and fame. And it's as if nations are becoming mentally ill in some sense, as together we run after these things. Studies in many nations show that people who subscribe strongly to these virus values are indeed significantly at greater risk of mental illness, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, or a personality disorder. For us, it's not just keeping up with the Joneses. We've got to keep up with the Kardashians. And if you don't know who they are, then God bless you. (laughs) Don't Google it. Because we get to see into their lives and snoop around their houses and examine their outfits and analyse how they're doing. There are dedicated YouTube channels, I'm told, um, on these things. But Paul's already said to the Corinthians back in chapter 4, do you remember? He says, we, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Yet we've got this tendency, haven't we, to put our trust and our eyes in what is seen rather than what is unseen. The things that we can see and taste and touch and experience and money and materialism and that they pander to that tendency in us. We we trust them. Actually, it's not just a one-off idea that you'll get in, in Corinthians. Again and again and again, through the pages of Scripture, the Lord reminds his people not to put their trust in those things. So do you remember, um, Moses, edge of the promised land, final sermon to the people, warning them after he's gone, he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. It's, It's hard to remember the Lord when you can trust in what you have. In some ways, money can protect us from the brokenness of the world, but it 
it in return begs for our allegiance, makes us arrogant. Or again, Jesus, again and again and again, more often than perhaps we realize, highlights the dangers and deceitfulness of wealth and things. He says, he says you can't serve God and money. And we say, well, yeah, I'll give it a go. Or he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we say, you should see me with a camel and the eye of a needle. I could do that. But friends, we must take care. We must take care. We have this blind spot. Again, I've mentioned this before, but I, without shame, mention it again. A quote from um, the author, the pastor, Tim Keller, regarding greed um, he was doing a series a while ago at his church in New York, um, talking of the seven deadly sins, men's breakfasts. And, and his wife, Kathy, says to him, she says, I'll bet that the week you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. And she was right. It was packed out for lust. It was packed out for wrath, even for pride. But nobody thinks they're greedy. He continues, he says this, As a pastor, I have had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Striking, isn't it? Greed. Greed hides itself from the victim. It means that we're blind in our hearts to it. And so it's a tricky topic for us to come to this morning as, as individuals, as people with those hearts, with those blind spots. I'm aware of that. But I think even more when we're coming into the context of a church as well, because churches get this wrong. Churches and money have baggage. There are lots of bad reasons that people can give to church or to churches or to charities. They, they can give to impress others. Jesus talks of that. The song and the dance and the ring of the bell to make sure that everyone's noticed we're stuffing the coins or the notes into the box. And so it becomes less about what we're giving and more about being seen. Or, or, or we can give sometimes to, to earn something. It's the proverbial vending machine that we talk about. If I put the money in, then God must give me what I want, yeah? If I up my standing order then that promotion that's on the cards at work, what do you say, Lord? Or we can give to pay God back. This can be really common, actually, and really dangerous. God has given me all this. Now I've got to pay some of that back. I'm in such debt to him. Surely he needs me to sort of balance up the scales a bit, yeah? But, but do you see, all that we have from him is from him. We are utterly in debt. We can't pay ourselves out of that. We're not giving him our things, we're giving him his things in the first place. And for you closet Anglicans, after the collection, all that we have comes from you and of your own do we give you. Or, or maybe we, we give because that's what we see everybody else doing. I guess it's, it's less the case with somewhere like Mordomar. We don't hang, hand around a basket. Giving is very much done in secret. You don't make a big song and a dance about it. But in some traditions, in some churches, there can be a kind of guilting into giving because you're going to have a basket in front of you and it's going to be obvious if you don't rattle something in there. 
So it's tricky for us as individuals, it's tricky for us as a church to talk about money. And I just want to say as well, if you're a regular here at Magdalen Road, you'll know two things. You'll know we don't talk about money very much in reality. We don't do that much speaking about it, or at least in terms of specific extended series. We don't do 10 weeks on giving and money and here's what you should be giving. Um, we speak about it when we come to it through, as we work through, through scriptures. So if you were here over the summer, do you remember that one on Proverbs? You can look on the website for that. But partly we don't talk much about money because actually we like to talk much more about God's generosity and kindness. The way to think about money and possessions right is to think right about how good and kind and generous God is to us. And if we get that front and center, if we see that he is kind and good, then we get a better perspective on money, and it just kind of flows out. So that's number one. That's why we don't talk much about money. Secondly, it's fair to say God has provided for us every year, at least in the last seven years since I've been here. Despite planting twice, giving has gone up every year. You guys have been generous. Paul talks about the grace of giving, and I see, I see that at Magdalen Road. There are needs at the moment. We'll mention this in a moment, but the old schoolhouse project has come, I think, to a slight standstill because we're needing um, a bit of extra to do the next step. But right through that process, the last six years, it has been like manna in the desert. The Lord has provided what we've needed at just the right time. He's very rarely early, but he is always on time. He is never late. We can look back and see God's humble provision each step of the way, and we can look ahead with humble confidence because he provides. It's also true, actually, as we mentioned at the prayer meeting on Tuesday, if you were there for that, that Cali Church Community, um, our plant from a few years ago, um, are needing to raise more funds at this time, uh, and as well as to grow in number and grow in people. So maybe there are some things for us very practically to, to pray through and to think through off the back of this sermon. But we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians 8 for this morning. Apologies, that was an extended introduction. Um, Maybe you've noticed, though, as it was read for us by Hazel, it's a bit of a gear change from the previous sections of the letter. There is less, less information here in terms of super apostles, in terms of the Corinthians, do you remember, making room in their hearts for Paul from last week. Now, this seems to be quite a specific situation that he is writing into. But what I hope we'll see is that while this is specific we'll see that there are principles that are wider and more universal, relevant for us as we consider and we pray and think about money, our relationship with money. If you have a look down, page 1163, 2 Corinthians 8, you'll see the the narrow situation seems to be that Paul is gathering a collection. It's not explicit as to what that collection is for. Um, I'm pretty certain it's the same as the one you'll find in Romans 15. I think he's collecting for the Jerusalem church. Despite the size, despite the importance of the town and of the church there, there have been poverty issues in Jerusalem from day one, it seems. Partly due to uh, persecution and exclusion and, and, and factions from various Jewish individuals. But also in part due to famines. And the story seems to be, from 1 Corinthians, there had been an initial flurry of excitement in the privilege of being able to give to this. And yet maybe that excitement has waned a bit. You know that thing where you feel that challenge, you think, I'd like to give to that. 
and kind of three weeks later, you're still thinking, yeah, I will get around to it. Well, so he's a bit concerned. He says he's going to send this, this crew along to gather and to transport this collection that they've promised. And so 9 verse 3, um, in order that our... Oh, I've got the wrong verse. 13... Anyway, in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow. But the, someone give me? Is it? Okay. I need glasses. Um, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be, says Paul. And maybe there's this question mark, though. Are they going to follow through? They'd promised this. They'd promised this giving. And Paul wants to help them, help them keep that promise. So that seems to be the narrow and the specific situation that he's writing into. It's a... It's a collection for Jerusalem, I think. But then we'll see from these first nine verses or so, and it goes on. We've, we've chopped it off at nine. There could be much more to say as well. Um, there are principles that help us as we consider, prayerfully consider what it means to have a relationship in one sense with money, how we handle money. I think there are loads, but we're going to focus in on three things this morning. Um, and the first thing is that we'll see in verse one to four, that they give out of poverty. I need to be careful as we read this, but this is really challenging. Verse 1 to 4, let me read it again. And now, brothers and sisters, we, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Isn't that humbling? It's extraordinary, isn't it? These are real people in real need. Verse 2, severe trial, extreme poverty... And if I put myself into that context, what's my knee-jerk reaction if times are hard? I've got to tighten the belt, reduce our giving a bit, maybe batten down the financial hatches. And if you get a, a letter through the post asking for a project or something, it's like, I'm really sorry. Not at this point. And in the, into the recycling it goes. And yet you see, they are rich in generosity. In the midst of the hardship, their real hardship, they gave. And actually, they gave not just as much as they were able, they gave even beyond their ability. It sounds crazy. It sounds topsy-turvy. It makes me squirm. And we think, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, Paul. I don't like that tactic. I'm feeling uncomfortable. It doesn't feel a particularly safe place at this point. Maybe we object to that. But isn't he just doing what teachers do sometimes? Some of you teachers. I remember teachers doing this to me. Um, it was a music teacher. I was about 12 stuck in my head, surely you don't want 3A to get better grades than you, do you? Surely you don't want them to win, really. He is encouraging them to give against another church's giving. But actually he's doing more than that. The Macedonians, if you like, weren't the, the proverbial sharpest tool in the box. They were smaller, they were poorer, they had undergone persecution. and The Corinthians, they thought of themselves as educated, do you remember, prestigious, wise, cultured, urban. They were larger, they were richer. It's as if he's saying to us, Magdalen Road, Magdalen Road, take a look at Anna Vines and her church in Sierra Leone. 
and see how generous they are. Look at what they give from the little that they have. Look at their poverty, but then their lavish hospitality. Look at how they, they welcome people. Look at their generosity. And isn't it humbling for us, particularly in the Western church? Generous giving out of real poverty. Again, just by way of application, focus in on verse 3. There's that little phrase there that gets under my skin. It's they gave beyond their own ability. It's, it's a radical generosity. And I, I recognize we need to be careful with this principle. And I could be wrong in this, but I think we hardly ever do that. Usually we give out of our excess. We give because we've got too much. We give at the end of the month rather than the start of the month. We give, hopefully, but often, for many of us, it doesn't really, really touch our lifestyle, really. It doesn't really leave us in need. We don't really go without to give. And there'll be exceptions. And you can come and chat to me afterwards. Of course, there are. But my worry, at least for me, is that I've caught affluenza. If I'm honest. Can I say, if you're here as a guest or a visitor, especially if you're here as a guest or a visitor, or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then can I say, close your ears for this bit. But if you are a Christian, can I ask you to prayerfully consider what this might mean for you? It's a good thing to look each year at our whether you're here as a Christian from this church or from another church or just thinking about money, each year looking at our lifestyle, at our giving, is a really good discipline to get into. If you're here and new to church and you'd consider this to be your home church, your spiritual home while in Oxford, let me urge you to consider giving to Magdalen Road. There are blue forms at the back. We don't have an external funding body. Um, all that goes on essentially comes from giving within this room. It pays for funding staff, it pays for everyday running, it pays for rent, it pays for all kinds of things. There are forms at the back for that. It's worth flagging again that we are at an interesting time for us as a church. That is kind of British understatement, if you missed it. We've, we've just bought a new building. And there's information on the boards at the back there. The old schoolhouse project is needing more finance at this point. Actually, it's needing it quite urgently. Again, we don't talk about that much publicly from the front but there's some things to be thinking and praying about. I'm aware that things are tight economically for a number of us. I'm aware that Oxford is incredibly expensive as a place to live in. I recognise that. And each person in each family will have different circumstances. But do take these verses seriously and prayerfully and consider what they might mean for you. In a sense, Paul is saying, look at poor international churches and let their radical generosity challenge your example, challenge your mindset. And maybe our question is, well, how? I like the idea, how? I think the second thing he brings out, verse 5 to 7, is that you can give out of discipleship. That is why they are so generous. Why are the Macedonians giving themselves Financially, is because they've given themselves initially, totally. Verse 5. Do you see? And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Maybe Paul had expected more a practical response. How much do you need? What are your outgoings each month? 
How much are we in the red? But rather that kind of accountant mindset, if you like, the Macedonians have the mindset of wholehearted devotion. They give themselves entirely. Hearts that seek initially to give themselves fully to the Lord and then therefore to give Paul their wallets, proverbially. Giving yourself is costly. We've thought about that already this morning. We've thought about remembrance. This Sunday is a timely reminder of that, of what wholehearted giving might look like. But I take it in, in the language of Jesus, the Macedonian church here have denied themselves, taken up their cross daily, and they followed him. Each bit of them, all of them following him now. Often our giving takes time to catch up. Charles Spurgeon says, with some Christians, the last part of their nature that ever gets sanctified is their pockets. Martin Luther, who said, there are three conversions necessary for the Christian. The, the conversion of the mind to gospel truth, the conversion of the heart to embrace Christ, and the conversion of the wallet or pocketbook, the laying of one's money at Christ's feet. I might add, fourthly, the conversion of one's right foot for the accelerator pedal. But, uh, but sometimes it takes a while for us to grow in Christ-likeness, doesn't it? It's striking for me that this pull of money isn't just a modern thing. For Spurgeon and Luther to talk about it, there's something timeless about money and its pull on our hearts. Someone's put it that for the Macedonians, this was, their giving was not just a cold act of um, bureaucratic philanthropy, but, but it's from the heart. It, it's involved in their all-of-life giving. And again, that's a challenge because it's easy to set up direct debits. And you can go onto the website or you can make a phone call to your bank and you can do that. And then suddenly we distance ourselves from our giving forever. We click the button and then we reluctantly or we mindlessly transfer the money and it becomes less about being an outworking of love for Jesus and more just something that we're supposed to do. The Macedonians were scarily generous. And his point is, they are a gifted church in Corinth. Verse 7, I think, is tongue-in-cheek from Paul. He says, but since you excel in everything, you Corinthians, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. But look, his point is, Corinthians, you are, compared to the Macedonians, you are positively bursting with gifts, overflowing with them. You have the, the proverbial teaching, preaching ministry that is known for miles around. Everyone is on the podcast. Everyone downloads your sermons. Corinthians, you've got books coming out of your ears on aspects of theology and practical living. Corinthians, you have wisdom and knowledge so that people long to tap into your views, just to get five minutes with you and find out what you think about an issue. Corinthians, you have a love that means you care for people. You are premiership quality now now just make sure that your giving catches up, yeah? See that you excel in this grace of giving too. There's a famous story told of John Wesley. And as far as I can see, he did excel in this grace of giving. And again, I, I, I share this story with caveats and carefully. But I think it, again, it's worth 
it hopefully applies or gives us an illustration or example of some of this stuff. And there was a crisis point for him. He found he was unable to give to the poor because he had bought some new pictures for his, for his walls in his house. You know, he'd been to Ikea. And then suddenly he didn't have anything left to give to those in real need. And so from that point on, he has this crisis point and he, he makes this decision to limit his expenses. So he would have more money to give away. Year one, income coming in, £30. Expenses, £28. So he had £2 to give away. Then his, his income, his salary just skyrockets. That's not a hint, thank you. You're very generous, but... His salary skyrockets. The next year, his income doubles. He still lives off 28 pounds, and so he gives away 32. The third year, 90 pounds. Still lives off 28, gives away 62. The fourth year, he receives 120 pounds. He still lives off 28 pounds, though. And so his giving rises to 92. Now, again, a word of caution. We're not called to asceticism. There is no problem in enjoying nice things. We have a good and kind and generous father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And there can be a danger if we think kind of physical things are bad and only spiritual things are good. It's good and it's right to enjoy nice things from God. But isn't his example challenging? Because we just join the race with everyone else. Biggering and bettering our houses. It won't be viable for many of us because we will have other pulls on our expenses. It's important and it's good and it's wise to save. You might find a spouse. You might have children. You might legitimately need to move house to a more expensive place, of course. But surely some of this principle ought to work its way through into, into our worship of God. That we might excel in this grace of giving. Again, though, I'm left with the question, how? How do I do that, really? How do I swim against the culture? How do, I, how do I not want to bigger and better my house? How do I not get dragged into the way the world thinks? Ah, because I know what my heart is like. Well, thirdly and finally, they give out of the cross. Brothers and sisters, when you stand before the cross of the Lord Jesus, it is much harder to be greedy and it is much harder to be selfish. So have a look at verse 9. It's extraordinary. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. If you are here and you aren't, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not sure, then maybe this service has ticked all those preconceived boxes. Yep, these Christians, they're just after my money. We're really not. But firstly, please just keep it in your pockets. But secondly, did you notice the foundation from verse 9, the fundamental foundation from verse 9 of why it is that Christians ought to give? It's not give money to God and he'll be happy with you or give money to God and you'll keep him off your back or you'll get what you want. Sadly, very often you hear those kinds of things in some churches and on some TV channels or on the internet, and it's really damaging, and it's really wrong. But it's not that at all. 
the motivation for the Christian to give is God has been so generous with you. So generous. As we sang, this is amazing grace. He gives us what we need. And it's from that then that we give. It's because he has been generous with us that we then are generous to others. Verse 9, the, the emphasis in the Greek in the original is for you, for your sake, Corinthians, he became poor. This is profoundly personal. Brothers and sisters in Corinth, you are so gifted, but you seem perhaps not to be gifted in this. Remember, for your sake, he became poor. For your sake, the richest man in all the world, in all of history, he, he became poor for you. Do you see the reasoning in verse 9? God the Son was, Jesus was rich, that is, powerful, glorious, awesome, perfect, eternal, loving relationship with God the Father in perfect unity and, and communion with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfectly rich. And yet he became poor. He, he gave it all up willingly for us. His glory, his majesty, his power, he, he takes on flesh, he becomes a man, and more than that, he, he becomes a man who dies on a cross, cursed. The rich man becomes the, the poor man. Why? So that through his poverty, we might become rich. And he's talking true prosperity here, the, the things that matter. He's not talking bank balance. Or, or houses, or savings, or cars, or stuff. He's, he's talking about real riches that last. Uh, a satisfying relationship with the God who made you, the, the God you were made for. He's talking forgiveness of sins. He's talking cleansing from all the wrong things we've done, or said, or thought. He's talking Jesus' perfect account of obedience credited to us, of knowing him, of gaining him, of of giving us himself even. We get God. That is real riches. What incredible, undeserved, extravagant generosity. Jesus could have held on to his wealth, but he gives it all up. He loses it for undeserving people like us. And I reckon today would be a great day to grasp that truth for the first time or indeed for the thousandth time. Through the poverty of Christ, we become rich. He says, here is this gift. Will you accept it? And so Paul says to the church in Corinth, friends, God has been so generous with you. Now be generous with what he's given you. Billy Graham said, we weren't made to be cisterns for hoarding, but channels for sharing. We're not meant to get grace and gifts and keep them here, but we're meant to pass them on in all kinds of ways. Another writer says this, our solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, where he poured out his wealth for you. Mordom Road, to get our thinking about giving and possessions and money right, we need to understand who God is and his kindness and his generosity and his love. 
his extraordinary kindness in giving us his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know the reality of our hearts. You know that many of us struggle with affluenza. Many of us think, just like everyone else around us. And so we pray that where we are greedy, you would reveal our blind spots to us. Where we are stingy, you might just help us to grasp a glimpse more of your extraordinary generosity to us. As we become increasingly like the Lord Jesus, as you change us to be like him, would that process increasingly involve and include our money and our giving? Give us wisdom, please, in complicated times where there will be financial decisions to make, where Oxford is a very expensive place to live. But we long to have that, that generosity that comes from knowing you. We thank you for the Macedonians. Lord, we are humbled as we see their example. We are humbled as we see the example of brothers and sisters around the world who have far less than we do and yet who are far more generous and have far more joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.